Um, I thought it would just be helpful to explain a little bit about my background and how, how my research interest has come about really. Um, my, I actually didn't come into higher education as an academic, I came in as a widening participation manager um, and I'm one of the few people who've made that transition um, through happenstance. I was asked relatively early on in my role if I would undertake some research and the wonderful thing about being asked to undertake research when you're not a researcher is you haven't got a clue what you're supposed to be doing so you just do what you think you should do intuitively and it seemed to work out okay. Um, so please don't ask me about the epistemologic and ontological beginnings of that bit of research because I won't be able to answer it. But what it was doing, I was looking at, I was... Um, Looking at people who were very marginalised and long-term unemployed and who were very excluded from any forms of education. So my research was with people who were selling the biggest you on the streets of Leeds. Uh, people who'd come over to the UK for either forced or arranged marriages. Um, people who had disabilities, which at that point, this is about 12 years ago now, they were, weren't as able to access employment as they probably forced to do now, she says in inverted commas, um, and also refugees, of which there was a considerable proportion of asylum seekers that I was involved in because at that time they could access training initiatives which have been also removed from that group of people. So that's, that was my sort of beginnings into the world of talking to people who were quite marginalised and isolated because of a form of difference, depending on, on social difference, religious difference or whatever. And, and so my work really has continued in, in that sort of vein. I've always been interested in those people who are either positioned as different and other or choose to uh, position themselves compared to other groups of people. So I've done a lot of work, as I said before, uh, continue to work quite a lot with refugees and asylum seekers, both adults and also young unaccompanied asylum seekers. Um, and then my work then moved into the area of looking at both religion and ethnicity slightly separately. Uh, so my, my work has, has moved more into looking at actually what goes on in higher education, though I still have a great interest in what goes on more broadly in society. And so this that I'm going to talk about now is really bringing two projects together, both of which have included groups of, of students who self-define as religious. I'm not going to go into the conversation about the meaning of religion because I think we've had some of that in the first couple of presentations. But my particular interest is in the idea of uh, belonging. I've done a lot of work around theorising the idea of belonging, drawing other people's definitions of, of what belonging may mean, and then thinking about how that actually uh, works on campus for particular groups of students. So just to start off really with um, the, the, the idea of, of what belonging is, and for me it's about connectedness and our attachment to other people, but that has to involve some form of actual interaction, and, and as again was mentioned this morning, that can be physical interaction, but it could be also an online interaction and so on. Some of my work is now starting to look at how we develop a sense of belonging um, for off-campus students, but that's a slightly different thing. Uh, and uh, mattering. Mattering is, is, is fundamental to the idea of belonging. So it's not just who we connect with and how we connect with people, but the implications for us and our identity of mattering to others. Um, belonging is also around the time and place and space within which these things are happening. 
and um, so within higher education my interest is in temporality and I've done a lot of work around temporality but also around place and spatiality where are the places within which people feel that they matter and within which sort of um, temporal frameworks do people have that sense of feeling that they matter to other people but mostly and for my work most specifically is belongings related to the everyday it's not something grandiose that happens uh, on a sort of uh, large scale practice uh, basis it's the everyday connections that we have with people it's the everyday things that we do it's the everyday practices now there's a lot of research that's been done around students and they the consequences for when they don't develop a sense of belonging on campus. Um, the things that are there are broad things that happen more societally to people who feel that they don't belong or are unable to develop a sense of belonging, but the same things have been uh, researched with students on campus who don't belong. And we know that those students are the students who are more likely to develop depression, anxiety, other forms of mental health, and also those are the students who are often more likely to leave their studies than other groups of students. So it's, it's a very important area of research. However, most of the research that's being done, which is focused on the concept of belonging, or even the discourses around belonging, have related to particular groups. So thinking back maybe over the last 20 years of research, a lot of what's been done is about women fitting in in male-dominated universities, and though of course there's now discourses around the feminisation of higher education, but nonetheless uh, the prevailing research at that point was around women, it's now more about young males, white working class males and so on. Um, work around uh, race, which has been about non-white students fitting in or not, age around mature learners, working class, and then students with disabilities. And there's a sort of a bit of an assumption that unless you fit into one of those groups, you will fit in. So if you are male, white, young, able-bodied and middle class, you will fit into higher education. Um, and my research is actually looking at what happens when somebody is white, middle class, male, able-bodied, also happens to be religious as well. What, what are the, the consequences for those sorts of students and looking at other groups of religious students Excuse as well? Sorry, I just wondered if there's a need to also include heterosexuality as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Although there's been a lot less research done in that area, I would suggest. It's an emerging area, but that's where the body of work has been done about fitting in and belonging. But yes, you're absolutely right. Um, but it is clear, as Christian said, that, well, we don't really know how many students there are on campus, but where the research has taken place with those students, actually it appears that those students, regardless of their class, race, gendered, sexual orientation and so on, are actually experiencing not the easiest time on campus. And we know that about 30% of, of students who self-declare as religious will indicate that they've been the victim of some form of religiously prejudiced incident and that cuts across all different groups of students of both religion and belief so those students who have belief but that wouldn't necessarily be recognized as a religion by some groups will still indicate that they've been a victim of, of this sort of uh, 
these types of incidences, and they're slightly different across different groups, but nonetheless there are sort of, sort of commonalities. Um, so these students in the two surveys that I've mentioned there have declared racism, xenophobia, threats of violence, um, censure in trying to get on with legitimate religious-based activities, um, surveillance and monitoring is particularly so amongst Muslim communities and a lot of these students also reported actual physical violence not just threats of violence so just the evidence there alone sort of contradicts some of the ideas about who, who is having this sort of fitting in an okay time on campus if we just go for the, the broader research that's been done Picking up on some of the things that Christine said this morning as well, is one of the difficulties with researching religion is we don't know who our religious students are. However you define religion, and however you may think you can collect that data, it isn't done systematically. So some universities are better at collecting it than others, um, but it's very, very um, haphazard because it's, uh, it's not one of the areas where students have to declare for example, when they make their UCAS applications, it's still not in there as, as a required field. So um, in my own university, we have these sort of random surveys that come around saying it would be really helpful to us if you told us lots of personal information without actually saying why it would be helpful to them and they want the personal information. So most people choose not to do it. So we, we, you know, we perpetuate um, a lack of knowledge both about staff and students. Um, and also, a lot of people feel it's a very private part of their life and shouldn't be part of the public discourse and choose not to want to discuss it anyway. Um, so, it, 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 because we don't collect the data, we can't readily identify who those people are unless by uh, dint of dress and, and clothing and other religious symbols we're able to sort of identify them. Then there's also the issues that we've talked about, what is religion and what does it mean to be religious anyway, which makes it problematic. But then there's two other areas that I think are really important, and they were touched on earlier on, but one is the idea that actually religion is something you can almost take off, and when you enter into higher education, if you choose to, you could hide it, or you could choose to show it, but it's not a fixed aspect of your identity, it's something that people have the uh, choice over, unlike, um, for example, race. So that there, there is a sort of prevailing assumption across some academics that it's something that students are just choosing to have, but they could equally choose not to have, and it doesn't have the same sort of um, weight in terms of the ways in which people see it as a, a social category worthy of research. And also there is, I, I argue, a very strong academic commitment to the idea of higher education being secular. Now... Um, Kristen has, has, has raised the idea that uh, higher education is not secular overall. There are aspects of highly secular parts of higher education and there are aspects of higher education which are not secular. And even on the most secular of secular campuses, we will still have religious students and religion being taught. So it's um, although there is, there is quite a lot of opposition amongst parts of the academic community around researching religion in general because there's a sense that it has no place at all on, on what is deemed to be a, a, a secular campus. So there are, there are sort of a range of complex issues. Obviously the um, Single Equality Act which uh, categorised religion and belief or not having a religion or belief as a protected characteristic has 
um, forced even the most secular of secular campuses to actually think about the issue and come up with policies. But the uh, research that I've done when I've looked at those policies, it remains in the realm of should we or shouldn't we serve halal food and where are we going to put our prayer room uh, if we have to have one at all. Um, so they, they avoid a lot of the discourses around issues around oppression, xenophobia and some of the real lived experiences for religious students and it lapses into the almost what can we get away with on the most basic level to make sure we're compliant with our legislation. So um, what's actually happened then because of some of these issues is that a lot of the research that's been done around um, religion and policy has been around secular versus faith schools and it comes up time and time again on the news again this morning, last night, around particularly around Muslim schools or schools which appear to have a very strong Muslim uh, locus of a sense of control in them. Um, the rights of um, religious expression on <coughs> campus, and this again was raised by whether <coughs> there should be gendered segregation and which should be more important, segregating women so religious speakers can come and present on campus or not having religious voices on campus because we choose not to segregate or necessarily choose to segregate women. And this is one of the things I asked our uh, equality and diversity group to address in its uh, religion and faith policy, but none that we, I mean, I can imagine you're not surprised by the fact that they chose not to address this there. I felt our governors should make a quite a strong statement about their own views on this, but they didn't. Um, and then there's, there's obviously the discourse around the role of education in enhancing community cohesion and particularly uh, the role of higher education in both combating religious extremism and being allegedly a breeding ground for fundamentalism. Um, so these are the sorts of discourses. So they're, they're usually quite um, fearful discourses. They're discourses which, which see religion on campus as something that should be distrusted or something that's uh, inherently harmful. So a, a lot of the work that's been done uh, historically has not been particularly positive about uh, religion on campus. At best, it's simply avoided the discussion and it's been silenced as an aspect of identity. And because of that, we don't really know, I mean, uh, the work that Kristen has been, do been doing and the work that was done by the Challenge, uh, Equality Challenge Unit has started to bring to the fore some of the things that are going on, but we still don't know very much about whether religion and higher education are at odds with each other and how it plays out, um, how it, it, uh, university experience informs religion. Obviously, a bit more, we know more about Christianity now, but we know still not so much about other religions. Uh, the ways in which students are accepted or not by non-religious peers or other religious groups um, and what this actually means uh, for particular institutions and how that may or may not shape institutional policy and practice. So my research has re really been trying to look at what goes on on a very local level. So it's one institution, that's all. It's not necessarily applicable across the whole sector. I suggest there are things about my research which are suggestive that if it's happening at the institution I work in, it's probably happening elsewhere. But I have only looked at one particular institution because I wanted to really look at uh, the individual student experience. So what I've been looking at, and this has been over the last sort of four or five years now, still very small scale, 
is the ways in which religious students, um, and this was self-definition of religion and religious, how those students participate socially and academically in student life, and I'm interested in their stories. So this is very much around storytelling research. Um, what, what are the things that they are choosing to tell me? So it's very open research about their experiences. So the work that I've been doing on belonging has taken 41 transcripts which were conducted over the first year of a group of 15 students from uh, Christian, Jewish, Muslim and just one Sikh student but from, from their first year. The second part, but I've brought the two bits of research together, is, is more recent research that I've been doing with overseas doctoral students. Now I didn't set out to look at religion when I set out to do that piece of research. I was doing deliberately a phenomenological study of the life world of international students studying for PhDs um, because I'm really interested in, again, the individual student experience. But the reason why I've included those students is because religion was one of the fundamental things that was actually significant for them in whether they felt they did or didn't belong on campus. So the first group there, these are students who are, have British citizenship, so all but one were born in the UK, they're educated in the UK, they've been through UK schooling, so they are um, sort of domestic UK students, but the second group are not, they're international students, so they're quite a different group. First group are undergraduates, the second group are postgraduates. But when you bring the data together, it says something really telling about their collective experiences, hence why I've brought them together. So I've been looking at, although the, um, the interviews have been conducted quite differently and that the first group of interviews were very much narrative storytelling and the second group were phenomenology-based interviews, what I've been doing is looking at the significant stories that the students have chosen to tell me about what's what their the life world really and the the life world where they've wanted to start it and where they've chosen to end the story of what's going on for them so some students have started their stories very far back in their very early uh, experiences and other students it's been a bit more sort of um in the now but but it's what they chose to tell me so i've been drawing on work by may around belonging which i found an incredibly helpful framework for me it's so lovely when you find someone whose work just speaks to you and you think wish i'd written that book but i didn't but it's really good that they have because now i can just shamelessly draw on their wonderful work so um May's work hasn't looked at students who identify as religious. She has looked at other groups of students, but, but this is the framework that I've used. So going back to the idea of everyday belonging, which is the area that I'm interested in particularly, and then cultural, relational, and sensory belonging. So I'm just going to talk through what these students have to say and, and what I think it means. So everyday belonging, really, is it's about... Um, the, your daily life with the nothing special going on. It's about what happens on a habitual basis to you day in, day out. It's about attending classes, it's about the relationships with those who you might live with in your flat, it's about your family circumstances and who you go home to at the end of the day. It's just what, what happens that you don't think about particularly because it's just there. It's the background noise of your life in effect. Um, and you, can, you only really notice it when something changes and you suddenly become uprooted. Um, but for these students, the ones that I'm talking about, 
almost without exception, the everyday word was quite problematic. So it wasn't that things could just be gone on with the noise in the background. It was really quite difficult for them. Um, power and relationships with other people were really uh, significant. And uh, significant tension between what would be considered to be ordinary that became extraordinary. So I'm going to go through some of the uh, quotes from this student. So apologies, I'll read them out because they are a bit small. So the first student, who's a Christian undergraduate, uh, white British student, is talking about going into a lecture. She's doing childhood studies or early childhood studies, and without any knowledge about this beforehand, she goes into a lecture and she's shown a film on abortion. And she says uh, it, it made her feel absolutely sick. She had to sit there and try not to watch it. Went against everything I stood for, but I didn't feel able to speak. So for this particular student, going into what for everybody else would be a normal space, the lecture theatre, became a space of, of real um, problem for her. But what's particularly difficult is the fact that she can't speak up against it. She can't say anything. She sits there. She doesn't feel she can walk out. So she sits there and listens to the, um, the whole of the, the, the film about abortion. And then even on a sort of even more basic level, really basic level, is um, this particular student from Amman, who's Muslim, is talking about how she can't, she feels this sense of, because in, in the, the broader conversation, it's about how she dresses and how she feels the ways in which she dresses creates a barrier between her and her supervisor. So she wants to call him Pete. And he feels deeply uncomfortable with that. Her argument is that he sees her as a woman who, because of her Muslim faith, is someone sh he should keep a distance from. So it's him choosing to distance himself from her. So she's wanting to create, to narrow the space between them socially, and he isn't wanting to do it. Now, she doesn't see that because of him being her director of studies. She sees that to do with her faith. So she, he, he wants her to, uh, to call him doctor. So this sort of ways in which people have this sort of power relationships with those around them. Um, a lot of the students talked about the problem of alcohol, which is an area that comes up in a lot of, uh, of the research that's been done around religious students, particularly the more pragmatic research. And um, they talk about the ways in which the other students around them create the problems that they find really difficult to live with. So drinking, smoking, um, bringing girls back into the flat, sleeping with people, all of those sorts of things that they, they find very problematic. So even the, their home world, the place where they're supposed to feel most comfortable and, and feel sort of relatively okay in, is, is really difficult. And they also talked about um, the fact that they, they, they just, particularly the international students, the absolute isolation, the difficulties of finding your way around this world, which, which seems so difficult and so bewildering, and the fact that people don't help. Uh, I think I've put probably the quote a bit later on where somebody says she, she feels like a ghost. So she's there, but she's not seen. And there's that sort of level of invisibility, and it's the same with Tony. It's, he says that he's living in this flat, he's an equal member of this flat, but it's as if he doesn't exist, and the other five just carry on this world around them. Um, and then this sort of ordinary and the extraordinary, and the relationships with teachers and supervisors, lecturers came up over and over again. 
um, Tony again speaking, he's talking about Easter and uh, the lecturer's trying to be all friendly and he says, I can't believe they can't remember the day they nailed the guy up. And it's just one of those throwaway conversations that he said would happen over and over again as if there was nothing problematic. And this was something that the Christian students noted most significantly. They argued that in a lot of the things where the student um, is, is struggling with his flatmates and where there are issues in the classroom that they experienced it much more significantly than, for example, Muslim students were, would because they said that lecturers and so on would be a lot more willing not to say those things if they felt there were Muslim students in the room and if he'd been a Muslim student he would have been moved from his accommodation. So this, this, the, there was lots of uh, discussion around, it's worse for me, I have it harder than. But all of the students said that, so you know, the reality was they all felt it in different ways. So the sort of everyday world was really, really problematic. Um, the next area that I was sort of interested in exploring was around um, cultural belonging. The idea that for these students, because of their religion, whether they felt they... they they were part of a broader cultural group. Now, I have a, I have a real sort of problem with the term culture and the way it's used in, in universities. I've actually written a paper on it earlier this year about cross-cultural <coughs> capability and uh, cross-cultural understanding and the, the multicultural classroom and so on because universities use those terms very readily to talk about how we should have a diversity but actually the thing that's excluded from the idea of culture is religion so when they talk about cross-cultural they're actually talking about linguistic sharing about um, sharing food about sharing of you know, different ways not religion religion again becomes one of those things that is absent from the discourses and when people write about culture they often don't write about religion being a, a valid part of, of culture and that's, that's particularly true, I, I argue, on, on campuses and particularly um, places like my own institution which is very proud of the ways in which they, they um, talk about cross-cultural capability etc but without ever looking at whose culture is, is acceptable within those sorts of discourses. So I'm interested really on, on whether that plays out for these students. Um, and again, going back to sort of May's work, uh, what, was, what I found particularly significant for, for these students was how difficult belonging was trying to fit in and how much it was contested by others. So there was a lot of effort being made by students that was being contested by other students or by staff. Um, but actually there was also a lot of effort being put in by those students to contest other people trying to fit in with them as well. So it didn't just work one way. A lot of drawing of boundaries in the ways in which to try and um, be part of, of a group and distinguishing th themselves from other groups. And then the complexity of belonging to lots of different groups at the same time um, and how sort of political that was as well. So very, very, very complex and just a few Sorry to reduce it down to sort of bite sizes, but um, the first student here, he says, 
How can they say, yes, come here, we want people of all different faiths and religions and beliefs, and we're happy to have you all, but when you're here, it's like there's nothing. So you can be a quiet Muslim, a silent Muslim, but please don't want us to support you to be a real Muslim. And this discourse of silencing was really significant across the accounts of all of the students, regardless, particularly so for the Muslim students, but for all of the students. Um, the Sikh student, Amni, to, again, this, this silencing, this invisibility comes out very strongly. I've nothing to say to them. I sit by myself during lectures. I sit by myself during the breaks. No one's horrible to me, but they look at me as if I was from a different planet. Now, this is somebody who's grown up in the UK, you know, somebody who's been through our schooling. So when these sorts of things happen, and the research that I've done looking at ethnicity, often it's accounted for by lecturers because they argue, but that's because she's an international student. She's not an international student. She's a British student. Um, and so... You know, the, the, it's very, very complex in terms of the ways in which these students are perceived, not just by their peers, but by their lecturers as well. And then this idea about trying to cross boundaries. So again, going back to Imran, he says he doesn't want to feel different. Again, he's been through British schooling, although he's got Pakistani heritage. He says, I'm Pakistani, but I'm also British and I want to fit in. I wish people would just accept me for who I am. Look past my skin colour, see the real me. I wish people would stop seeing the barriers. And it's again, this discourse around things going up to stop people being seen. This, again, this sort of invisibility or seeing people almost through a distorted lens. And then again, it's not a complete silence when I walk in the room, but it feels like it. Like they were all talking about something and then they stop and it's a horrible feeling like you're being deliberately excluded from their lives. So, across, regardless of, of religion, ethnicity, gender and so on, this, this, this aspect of the ways in which these students felt invisible and silenced because of their religion is really, really significant. So the next area um, is about the sort of outgrouping and ingrouping, the ways in which people are accepted as part of the we or them, um, and the ways in which they're othered by groups and also by themselves as well. And what became uh, really significant here was about the ways in which these students were constantly being reflexive about who they are and who they are compared to someone else, and the work involved in just being able to get on with your life was really hugely significant. So they had all the things that were going on in terms of their daily practices that were very reflexive. So these students were often um, very involved in, in conversations with God or, or in other forms of, of religious conversation. Am I doing the right thing? Am I behaving in the ways in which would be okay? Um, am I you know, contravening a set of values? All that level of reflexivity going in on the one hand, just in terms of what's going on in their own heads. But then they've got all of that going on in terms of their relationships with other people as well almost to the point where I felt exhausted talking to some of these students, that level of reflexivity and then strategizing in out, it was, it was very, very, very difficult. So a lot of what was going on was actual physical outgrouping, 
socialising outside of the university that I'm at and socialising elsewhere. Um, now that, that socialising might be through and often was another, a place of worship where those students were accepted very readily off campus but sometimes it was to do with um, race groups as well so it wasn't always just faith things it was, it was sometimes to do with race um, but again the hard work that had gone in to for some students in trying to fit in and then just giving up and, and just socialising completely off campus but other students actually making that, that choice to be physically not part of the, the campus. And that was particularly true for some of the Jewish students that were part of this research who um, had chosen very deliberately to only socialise and only live and only eat and only um, belong with other Jewish students. And that couldn't happen on the campus. That happened off campus in a particular Jewish halls of residence. So it wasn't just about some students being almost made to go outside of the institution. Some students were actually choosing to do that. Um, and then there was, oh, I did put it up, that quote I was talking about, this uh, students being reflexive about who they are compared to other people that should be like them in a way, but they're choosing to not identify with. And a huge amount of discussion going on about that. And I really like this quote when he's, he's talking about um, other black African students, but he's particularly distancing himself from the international students who've hassled their way into the country, putting themselves through university, single-minded, opinionated, rich Africans, parents part of the elite and part of the problem, so that's sort of <laughs> stepping aside of, of that as well. Um, he was a really interesting student because um, he kept um, affiliating himself to his Muslim faith and then practicing it and then rejecting it and then just choosing not to be part of that and then going back to it again and then choosing not to be part of it, and backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards, both physically in going off to um, different countries in um, Africa and also sort of emotionally. So he, the, the, the amount of work he was involved in, sort of reflexive work, was really significant. And then from all of this hard, hard work, the ways in which these students eventually managed to, 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 to develop relationships with others, and, and it, it is really significant things about the intersectionality with, with things like age because um, this student here is talking about how um, she starts to manage to be part of the in-group by building um, relationships through the advice that she can give because she's been married, which, and her advice is don't get married. She's <laughs> um, mine all the time, but there we go, it's another story. Um, and, but also, with the international PhD students, how hard it is to make the relationship with supervisors. Supervisors were absolutely fundamental to whether those students survived or not. But the work involved in creating that relationship was really significant. And the students felt that they had to do that. Um, so a huge amount of work to try and, and create a relationship there. So again, you've got students who, this feeling of invisibility, this feeling of not fitting in, this feeling of um, being seen as very different, and then working very, very hard to try and create places within which they're accepted.
And then sort of the idea of belongingness and embodied experience and belonging to place, which is the, the next day of, of real significance. Now, it's important to know that for some of these students, they either couldn't or wouldn't hide the fact that they were from a particular religious group. It was fundamental to their religion. So the Sikh student who was a Khalsa Sikh wore the symbols of her faith because she'd been baptised and therefore she wore the symbols that were really significant to her. Some of the Muslim girls uh, wore headscarves. So those students, um, for them, their, their faith was very visible. Um, other students actually chose not to make their faith visible and talked about hiding crosses um, and hiding other symbols of their faith. So there's quite a lot of, again, reflexive work involved for some of the students, whereas for others it was just simply um, the, the very visibility of who they were. Um, and then there was a lot of uh, conversation around place and what was, which places within the university were actually places within which people felt they could belong and what was actually working to keep them away. So Amnit, who's the Sikh student I talk about, um, she, she had been briefly to university in India, although she was a UK student. Um, she talked about how there, because of the way she looked, she fitted in, but obviously she was the only Sikh student. I would suggest she was probably the only Sikh student in her faculty. So she wasn't just the only Sikh student in her year group on her course, but probably in the faculty, certainly female. Um, and then another student here who is very visible by her identity because she chooses to wear a headscarf, but she says, again, that you're just ignored. So part of her is saying, I'm really visible, but I'm also really ignored. And this is the one who says it was as if I was a ghost. Um, this, this splitting uh, across lots of different places is, is again part of the student I talked about before who doesn't only feel Pakistani and British but he's, he's moving, uh, he's living in Manchester and commuting all the time so again he's got that aspect of, of what's happening in terms of the difficulty in finding uh, rootedness in particular place. Um, I've mentioned there about some students simply giving up and socialising elsewhere so they are rejecting a particular place and choosing to align themselves to another university which I think is really significant and highly problematic. Um, and then again the, the idea of um, the this, this safe place, the home place actually being a site of contestation with other people because of one's faith. And this is where one of the students is talking about it, would, it wouldn't happen if he was Muslim. It's because he's Christian. So what happens with these students then is that some of them choose to pass as non-religious. Um, they never mention that they are religious to anyone that they have shared their course with, anyone they live with. They don't wear any of their symbols of their religion. Um, and they don't practice uh, where they would be seen, so they simply pass as non-religious in the ways in which um, some people used to pass as either straight or as non-black uh, in the States. These students are passing as not being religious. Um, that was only for the Christian students, I have to say. It didn't happen across the other groups of students, but, but there was... Um, Again, a lot of reflexive work involved in making that decision. And one of the students says that she um, 
it's the old one of the older women students who says she's divorced, um, she's older, she's working class, and she says that she couldn't add that other level of othering onto her life and she would never be able to fit in if she did so she makes a very deliberate choice um, and other students choose to do that as well um, avoidance simply avoiding people and making sure that you're not into situations where there can be any conflict and that came up in Kristen's uh, research earlier on so that a very deliberate strategy of avoiding other people or and um, again some students chose to do this, sometimes they would choose to avoid and then other times they would confront and they would often go in and confront quite um, strongly. So again there was lots of tensions between the ways in which the Jewish students felt that the um, Palestinian students were given better treatment on campus so that the Palestinian students would be allowed to maybe have a stand at a particular fair and the Jewish students were told that they weren't allowed to so they, um, one particular Jewish student had deliberately become a member of this, the students' union, the general students' union, in a way to actually challenge some of the things that's going on and sort of confront what she felt in the ways in which she felt she was under attack. Um, some level of othering others as a defence mechanism to being othered from peers. Um, so that happened quite often, again, seeing yourself as different to other groups out there. Some level of, and this is a quote from um, one particular student who said his strategy was just to charm and disarm, and that's how he approached. So he wasn't going to hide his religion, he wasn't going to avoid, he wasn't going to confront, he was just going to charm and disarm, and actually he did. Still got a little bit of a heart for him, <laughs> charmed me. Um, and then emotional disengagement and physical disengagement, which for institutions, if you think about them as business environments, are the most significant because on a physical level, these students, some of them chose to drop out. They just discontinued. So they left. So obviously that's financial. And then on an emotional level, I think what, what universities nearly need to understand is these students talk to each other. And if they're saying, this is not a place where people like us belong, they will be telling others. And it's particularly important where we're trying to attract international students who tend to have um, a stronger faith identity. If we're attracting those students onto campus and they don't feel that they can fit in and belong, they will be telling other students. So on both those levels, there's a real sort of business case imperative for sorting some of this stuff out. So for me, um, just sort of bringing this, this work together really is that um, it's really emotional stuff for some of these students and I think there's a lack of recognition of how hard it is, how painful it is and how much it hurts some of these students. Their experiences are ones that are really significant and really deep and I would imagine have really long-lasting implications for them. These are things that are happening to some of these students that really, really do hurt emotionally. Um, they, because of this, their response is to socialise and to live almost completely away from the university. They are subjected, in whether they, they socialise away from the university or they stay on campus, they feel constantly rejected challenged, frustrated and so on uh, and very much isolated. With the um, doctoral students in particular 
loneliness was probably the most significant thing that came out of those interviews, which is still ongoing, but in the first sort of analysis of those, I know there's only a few, but that excruciating feeling of loneliness. Um, it, it, I don't think I can overestimate how harmful that was for some of those students. Um, and then again, this sort of hard work that's been going on for these students, trying to belong, this feeling of being between belonging and then uh, going back to this idea of loneliness, but the hard work that's involved in trying to fit in. Um, and it's, it's about the, the uh, reproduction for me of privilege. So going back to what I said at the beginning, perhaps there's a contemporary discourse still that certain groups of students are privileged in higher education, that if you're white, if you're middle class, etc., it will be okay. Um, but these students, even if they were white, even if they were middle class, you know, they, they weren't belonging and fitting in, and they, they were actually being very isolated. But for the other students who had um, perhaps other things that made them struggle more, it just made it even more difficult and perpetuated even more some of their um, lack of fitting in. So um, the ones that were choosing to pass had made that decision and I think it's really sad that the only way they felt they could fit in and conform was to actually pass as being non-religious um, or they were choosing to, to drop out. But even where students did stay, um, they felt very, very, very silenced. And some of the conversations said the only time it's discussed is when religion is aligned to terrorism and fundamentalism. That's the only time it's ever discussed. And so I think these students are having quite an inequitable student experience. Now, I will end by saying these are probably not typical because these are students who chose to put themselves forward. This was not done as a survey of across all students and then looking at you know, what all students are saying. These are students who chose to come forward and we know that students come forward because they've got something they want to tell you. So we have to take uh, account of that. Uh, but nonetheless, I think that even if these stories are quite extreme versions of what might be going on, there are some issues really for our students, our religious students on campus, whether they're Christian or Muslim or Jewish or Sikh. And I think that was my thing. Thank you. Mm.